Last night, I sat up watching my plasma television. My wife and I discussed our European holiday. I had a fine dinner. I went to bed in a comfortable bed. And I got this morning, I had a full breakfast. Life seems pretty good to me. And now I'm interviewing Richard Heinberg, who's the author of books titled such as The Party's Over, The Peak Everything, and The End of Growth. Richard Heinberg, are things really that gloomy? Are you a doomist? (laughs) No, I'm not a doomist. I think we have uh, some serious challenges facing us, though. And I think those who who say that, you know, all of our problems are going to be easily solved by some kind of new technology are are kidding themselves. Um, We've lived through uh, the period of greatest abundance in human history. Um, But all good things come to an end, and I think we're we're at the cusp of a a new economic era, one of increasing scarcity and one where we'll have to draw more upon our inner resources rather than just depending upon uh, cheap energy to fuel uh, more... Uh, more consumption. So how do you know that this is our situation? What's your evidence? Is it based on a gut feeling or is it... Oh no, it's it's certainly not just a gut feeling. Uh, There's overwhelming evidence. Uh, uh, Oh, where to start? Well, the best place to start is with energy because energy is what enables everything to happen. Energy is what enabled the Industrial Revolution to happen. We we, uh, found sources of super cheap, concentrated, high-quality energy that we never had before. And that fueled the biggest party in human history. But even though we're not about to run out of fossil fuels, the most important of them, oil, is getting more difficult to to get. Uh, The oil industry has to uh, drill deeper in further away places. And so the costs of exploration and production are skyrocketing. Price of oil has gone from $12 a barrel in 1998 to uh, 10 times that today. Even in inflation-adjusted prices, that's a huge increase. And, uh, and we know from recent economic history, the last 30, 40 years, every time oil prices significantly go up, the economy uh, fails to grow or goes into recession. That's what's been happening for the past few years with very high oil prices. We've seen stagnant economic conditions or uh, in, in, uh, in the case of the GFC, you know, really, really tumbling um, uh, market shares and uh, and you know, everyone's worried about what's going on in Europe, what might happen on next on Wall Street, and so on. Well, you know, it's it's all tied together. It's part of a world system, and that world system is uh, was developed in, in the last century on the basis of cheap oil, and that's not a world we live in anymore. So, are you coming at this from a, a practical and economic point of view, or? Are you looking more at from a left environmentalist point of view? Should we be living in communes and wearing hair shirts? <laughs> well, you know, um, let's look at this practically. Uh, if we're going to have less energy to go around in, in the near future, uh, or if energy is going to be more expensive, then we're going to have to adapt. Um, during the 20th century, with lots of cheap energy, we had the problem of overproduction, and we solved that with uh, with more advertising and with more debt, helping people to uh, go into mortgage debt, uh, take on debt to buy cars and flat screen TVs and all the rest. But we've reached limits to debt, too. So we're going to have to cut back on consumption one way or another. 
the question is whether we do it intelligently and cooperatively uh, with some kind of forethought or just you know wait till the economy hits the wall and then try to pick up the pieces but is this a matter of environmental constraints of resource constraints or is it just the way we run our economy is it just the fact that our economy isn't perfect and there are flaws in it yeah well it's both uh, we certainly have built a flawed economy over the past few decades. There's, I think you get pretty widespread agree- agreement about that. But <clears throat> the, the financial economy ultimately rests upon a resource economy and an energy economy. And that's, at, at the core of it, that's what's driving the change. Um, you know, if we could just print more money forever and ever uh, to pay for more and more things then, uh, yeah, maybe we could just keep going on and on and on. But ultimately, that money has to be exchanged for real stuff. And what we've seen over the past uh, few years is that as energy gets more expensive, it makes almost everything else more expensive, transportation, food, uh, even uh, mineral commodities, you know, because we, as, as we exhaust the high-grade uh, high, high ores, then we have to dig deeper and process lower-grade ores. Well, we can do that, but it takes more energy. And if energy is getting more expensive, then that drives up the price of, of commodities, other commodities as well. But is, is it perhaps the case that the economy is not balanced because the rich people get richer and, and the wealthy people earn more and people who are at the bottom end of the scale don't mm-hmm. do so well? Is it just the way that the wealth is distributed in our economy? Well, that's, uh, that's certainly a part of it too, you know. Uh, as economies have grown, uh, income uh, uh, inequity has grown as well. And this is true uh, for in China, for example. We just look at China's growth over the past uh, 20 years, let's say, uh, almost unprecedented rate of economic growth. And with it has come an almost unprecedented rate of increase in economic inequality. But China is just doing what uh, what the United States has done and other industrialized countries have done. Now, some, of course, have, have tried to mitigate that process with uh, progressive income taxes and... and uh, um, and, and other efforts to to relieve the, the the burden on the on the poorest members of society, but you know that those were the good times. Now, when we head into the the more difficult times of of increased scarcity, extreme economic inequality is going to create social crisis as well. Unless we do something to to address that problem. Well, I've been talking to Abraham Lincoln, and if I got the quote right, he said something like, you can't make the poor richer by making the rich poorer. So are you suggesting that we move to some more socialist economic system? I I don't care what anybody calls it. Uh, I I think socialism has uh, has, uh, also depended very much on economic growth. Uh, so I don't, I don't think you know. There's a, there's a formula to uh, address the problem that we're talking about. But you know, uh, one thing I think we could do is reduce the scale of the financial system in the economy because uh, as we've increased debt, that has increased the assets of the financial industry, which increases its social power as part of the overall uh, political and social economy. 
And, uh, and we reach the, the stage where bas- basically the bankers of the world are calling all of the shots and, uh, and hundreds of thousands of, of people, millions of people lose their jobs so that the bankers can, can be assured of being repaid all the, all the debt that's owed them. Um, again, that's socially unsustainable. And, and uh, one, one way to redress that would be just to tax all financial transactions, to downsize the financial industry so that manufacturing and farming are once again form the basis of our economy. Do you see this as being fundamentally connected to the Arab Spring, so-called, and the, the Occupy movement? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, at, uh, the Arab Spring was provoked to a large extent by hikes in food prices. Uh, We're talking about countries that import most of their food, Egypt, Tunisia. And when food prices double in a situation where the average household is is spending half its income on food, it's a survival crisis. And, And of course people are going to go out in the street and protest. And we're going to see lots more of that unless we begin to address the underlying financial and economic problems in a way that actually helps ordinary people rather than just helping the bankers. Now, what about GDP as a measure of our well-being? Do you think that we should be moving to a measure such as the gross happiness index, such as they have in Bhutan? Yeah. Well, you know, GDP is a, is a perverse indicator. Almost all economists now are, are admitting that it's, uh, it fails to account for most of the real goods and bads in society. All it measures is how much money we spend, and it's a a stand-in for consumption. So if consumption goes up, GDP goes up, and politicians are happy, economists are happy. But we're not necessarily more happy. The ordinary person uh, is seeing their quality of life erode as they have to work two jobs and in order to make ends meet uh, and make payments on their debt. You know, if everybody goes into debt to consume more, to buy bigger cars and so on, th- again, that makes the GDP, GDP go up. But then we're all in debt up to our eyeballs. We can't do that anymore. So, yes, uh, alternative indicators will help us uh, change the incentives in our economy so that we're actually pursuing uh, – better quality of life rather than just more and more consumption. Well, GDP seems so embedded in our vocabulary. How do we change our thinking away from that? Uh, well, you know, GDP is a simple number. Uh, it's, it's, it's just how much money we spend. And, uh, and generally politicians avoid the uh, switch to something more, more complicated like a GPI, Genuine Progress Indicator, just because it's more complicated, it would, would require more surveys and so on. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to do something like that. GDP is, is, uh, is driving us into the, into the grave. So you mentioned limits to oil, mm-hmm. and you didn't use the term peak oil, but I think there are a few peak things you might mention. What are some of those? Well, you know, uh, peak oil makes sense because... Uh, we increase the rate of production as we find more oil and, and as the oil companies drill more and, and produce more. And then we reach a, a, a plateau as we're on right now globally, and then, and then it goes into decline. So it's some, it does form a sort of peak. With some other resources like, uh, like water, for example, we're using way more water, fresh water these days than ever before. And... Uh, and I suppose you could say we're at peak water, but in, in a way, it doesn't make quite the same sense as it does with peak oil. 
Uh, same with fish from the oceans. We're just exhausting these these non-renewable resources uh, and and renewable resources we're using at rates greater than than nature's way of replenishing that that applies to fish and forests so you know altogether you know we're we're in a situation where there's just too many of us using too much too fast and we're going to have to address it uh, in all three areas you know we're we're going to have to look at population and we're going to have to look at rates of consumption and we're also going to have to look at the rate in which we're we're operating our economy, slowing down and localizing. A common conception of oil peak is that we can replace it with other things. Like mm-hmm. We can make ethanol from corn, biochar, right. and so on. Aren't those substitutes going to help us out? The oil sands in Canada and Alaska? Yeah. Well, um, unfortunately, all are uh, inferior substitutes. Uh, the unconventional oils like the tar sands from Canada are, cost more to produce, not just in, in dollar terms, but in energy terms. It takes energy to get energy. Uh, with oil, historically, it took a trivial amount of energy to go out and explore for oil and drill a hole in the ground, and you got an enormous amount of energy back from the oil that, that uh, came up. With tar sands, that that energy profit ratio is just a tiny fraction of what it was with conventional oil in the 20th century. And with biofuels uh, like ethanol, in many cases, there's no energy profit at all. Uh, So, you know, it may make financial sense if the price of oil is very high and if, if the government subsidizes ethanol production as it does in the United States. But from an energy standpoint, it makes no sense. And it's certainly not going to replace oil. What about your position on other energy sources such as wind, mm-hmm. solar, tidal, geothermal? Yeah. Are they going to help us out of this? Well, they will, they will certainly help, and we should certainly be developing them. We've waited far too long. We should have started this energy transition to renewables uh, 30 or 40 years ago because that's how long it takes to change out the energy infrastructure of a modern economy. You can't do it overnight. We're talking about trillions and trillions of, in, of dollars of investment that will be required, enormous amounts of infrastructure, and many, many years of, of hard effort. And that'll have to be subsidized in order to, to make it happen fast enough. So at the end of the day, we are also talking about sources of energy that are fundamentally different from fossil fuels. Uh, solar and wind are intermittent. The sun doesn't always shine. The wind doesn't always blow. And so we have to have storage capacity, long-distance transmission, and, and that kind of infrastructure also costs money and takes time to, to develop and install. So in, in the interim, I think it's, it would be foolish to assume that we can just press a button, switch to different energy sources, and have economic growth go on as before. It's just not going to happen. Well, you mentioned population growth as well. Mm-hmm. And don't we need the economy to grow in order to feed and keep the general well-being of the population? Well, yes, we'd certainly like the, pop- the, the economy to grow for that purpose, but that doesn't mean it will. Uh, when I say we're facing fundamental limits, I don't mean that they're negotiable limits, that you know, if we really want population growth, it'll happen anyway. No, this, these are hard limits. We're going to have to make do with, with what we have. And if there are more of us wanting those resources, that just makes it that much more difficult and, and will entail more human misery. That's why I think it's really important that governments start addressing the population issue. Uh, if there are fewer of us demanding resources from the planet, then there's more 
to go around and, and will make this, this transition much more easily. So if the governments were to agree that a population limit was a good idea, and that seemed in itself a hard thing, how might they do it? Because it seems hard to change people's habits. Right. Well, first, the first thing is just to change people's attitudes. I'm not talking about uh, necessarily a one-child policy as in China, you know, forcing people to be sterilized or anything like that. Um, what I am talking about is, uh, is, is empowering women in, in poor countries to, to choose how many children they want. Uh, what I'm talking about is, is uh, governments telling their, their populations that there, there are advantages to smaller families. Rather than giving baby bonuses, we should be uh, actually doing just the opposite. We should subsidize, be subsidizing couples not to have as many children. Well, don't we need a growing population? Like in Australia, we're talking about our mining boom and we need more workers. We have an ageing population and we need younger workers to feed and to drive the economy to look after the older people. Right, right. Well, the mining boom is over. You know, it's... uh, All you have to do is read the papers. China's economy is starting to stall out. And as that happens, that lowers the prices of, of mineral commodities. So, you know, the Australian government's uh, solution to that is to, uh, you know, produce more so, so as to make up in volume what, what they're losing out on, on unit price. But that, that's just going to lower the prices even more with the supply glut. So, no, uh, also Australia's mines are being automated. So the country doesn't need more, more population. It needs to take care of the people who are already here uh, better rather than, rather than planning for more. There seems a lot of vested interest in this topic. People, you mentioned bankers. And how do you change the attitude of politicians? Hmm. Well, you know, politicians respond to uh, their constituents. And so if, if their constituents start raising questions about uh, the direction we're going with economic and population growth, Sooner or later, politicians are going to have to answer. I, I think they're going to avoid it for as long as they can because, of course, some of their constituents are, are, are big corporations that, that really want to hear that there's plenty more economic growth uh, where the last bit came from. But uh, sooner or later, we come up against harsh reality. And, and, the, and the sooner we face reality, generally speaking, the better off we are. Now you mentioned... Um, we talked about alternatives to oil and so on. You seem sceptical that technology alone is enough to help us out of this fix. There seems no bound to human ingenuity. Mm -hmm. Can't we find a technical fix? Well, I think uh, we're going to need every bit of the ingenuity ingenuity that we have in order to adapt to this new reality and uh, and create a future that's, uh, that's actually better, in fact, for not only for ourselves, but for the next next generations. We can do that. We are ingenious and adaptable uh, people. The idea that there's some kind of techno fix out there that will just keep g- growth going on forever, I think, is a fallacy. There's a, a paper making the rounds among economists right now from uh, Robert Gordon at uh, Northwestern University. It's a paper that's getting... Uh, both, you know, good and bad reviews. But briefly, the the uh, 
thesis of the paper is that there have been three technological waves since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And Gordon, of course, backs this up with, with the numbers. It, this is not just uh, uh, you know, some kind of flimsy opinion. Uh, and those three waves were first uh, uh, coal and steam in the uh, 19th century, then oil and electrification in the uh, early and mid 20th century, and then uh, computers, cell phones, and internet uh, since you know the 80s. And uh, Gordon shows the, uh, the the numbers clearly reveal that it was the second of those three technological eras, the one based on oil and uh, and electrification that gave us most of the economic growth. And as that sort of reached the point of diminishing returns, economic growth started to stall. We got a bit of a, a, a more of a spurt of growth with the computers and internet and so on, but a much smaller one. And now here we are. You know, we've we've just had the biggest technological uh, innovation we can imagine. You know, with instant global communications and and cell phones and iPads and all the rest, and that just gave us just a little squib of economic growth compared to what we had earlier. Okay, well, what's the next big thing? I don't know. It's certainly not going to be, uh, you know, algae-based uh, biodiesel or something like that. You know, it, I, I don't see anything on the horizon that's likely to give us the kind of economic growth we got during the 20th century. Um, so we should be making other plans. So computers and information technology are primarily about efficiency. Right. And you've been talking about resilience. What do you mean by resilience? Well, resilience is the ability to uh, absorb shocks and keep going. And we have lots of shocks on the way from the environment, from climate change, uh, from the economy, and, and uh, in our transport and food systems. So how do, we, how do we adapt those systems so that they'll continue to function? Well, I, I think the best way is going to be to relocalize most of what we're doing, to diversify what we're doing, to create more uh, inventories, because this is what makes, tends to make systems more resilient. As we centralize systems, as we put all our eggs in one basket, then we sacrifice re resilience. And we've been doing that with globalization for the past couple of decades. So we need to reverse course and... Uh, and develop more localized food systems, bring uh, uh, manufacturing back home rather than globalizing it. Uh, there are some, some costs associated with doing those things, but they're insignificant in relation to the, the risks that we run by continuing to uh, pursue economic efficiency at the expense of societal resilience. Well, clearly you've put a lot of energy into this and you've written numerous books on the subject. Was there a key moment or a key person where, that awakened your awareness of these things? Well, yeah, and, and it was way back in 1972 when I was 21 years old. I read the book, The Limits to Growth. Um, already at that point, uh, it was clear that uh, society would reach these fundamental limits sometime in the early part of the 21st century. Uh, now, of course, many mainstream economists... Um, uh, dismissed the Limits to Growth report and have regarded it ever since as though it's been somehow uh, discredited. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. The CSIRO did a report on it back in 2008 uh, looking at uh, the Limits to Growth study from 72 and the 
a subsequent uh, 35 years of, of data, and they found that the limits to growth uh, scenario study that was the, the standard run scenario, which showed peak and decline of industrial uh, activity in the first part of the 20th century, uh, they found that that was basically, <laughs> we're right on track. <laughs> we're following that scenario pretty closely. So, you know, that that book woke me up, and I've, I've spent my entire adult life, you know, t- trying to understand how and why we've gotten into this situation and what we should do about it. Like, frankly, I don't see anything more important to do. So how does it affect you? Do you feel pessimistic? I think it would be... Uh, uh, Foolish to succumb to pessimism. You know, if, if you if, if you uh, really accept that that we're we're just doomed as a species, then you know what good are you? You're not going to do anything to help out. And and we need all hands on deck right now. We need a sense of of optimism in the face of adversity. Uh, I mean, what did people do during the Great Depression or the Second World War? They didn't just you know fold up camp and 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 uh, go away. No, they worked harder. They they grew more of their own fruits and vegetables. They went out and, and fought if that's what they had to do. And that's what we're going to have to do now. So having a sense of, of sort of can-do optimism, I think, is, is, is very healthy in this situation. So what's your prediction? If we were sitting in this spot in 50 years' time, what would we be looking at? I think we'd be looking at uh, probably... Uh, less globalization, less personal consumption, far fewer automobiles, uh, m- more s- uh, small and diversified communities that are more self-reliant. Uh, we'll have lots more people making their livings uh, by providing real basic necessities to to uh, uh, their communities rather than just by you know loaning money or 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 providing some kind of ephemeral services uh, like that. Uh, and I think actually even though the, the, the near future holds many challenges, I think we could be much happier in 50 years' time than we are right now. So you, you're optimistic that we can actually do something to tackle this? You do see us falling into resource wars and greater conflict? Yeah, well, you know, in, in the worst-case scenario, yes. I mean, the, the worst-case scenario is very, very bad indeed. If, uh, if we're not prepared for economic contraction, then when it happens, I'm afraid that there will be demagogues who will rise up and, and try to blame people on the other side of the planet for, for our economic woes. And yes, we could have resource wars, but it certainly doesn't have to be that way, especially if people understand what's going on, that it's not somebody else's fault. We're all implicated. We've all gotten into this you know, gluttonous, uh, surge of consumerism and we can all get out of it together. Hmm. Is, that, is that wishful thinking though that we can change people's desire for the material benefits? No, not at all. We were talked into this. You know, we, we had, we, we are the targets of trillions of dollars of advertising Campaigns skillfully targeted to make us want more to, and to make us think that we are inadequate as human beings unless we consume more and more and more. You know, all we have to do is reverse that message. All, all we have to do is, is have folks reminding us what's really important in life, that it's family and, and our connections with the natural world and, and our sense of, you know, 
creative artistry and, and contributing to society. All we need is to be reminded of that, and you know, we can we can give up on flat screen TVs and and all the rest. So, you, what kind of reaction are you getting to your talks and to your books? Do you, do you feel that you're getting traction? Do you feel well, that, yeah. that people are agreeing with you? I think people are relieved to, to hear somebody say these things. You know, it's. Uh, Everybody's working harder and longer hours and getting stressed out and and knows everybody knows that something fundamental just isn't adding up in this in this equation. So to have somebody you know kind of uh, connect the dots and and uh, show that there, it doesn't necessarily mean the end of the world that we can adapt, I think people people appreciate that. Well, Richard Heinberg, thank you very much for your time today. It's, it's been, been a pleasure. pleasure. Pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you.